If you have a Bible, I'd love to have you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. As you know, week number two in our Advent series that goes along with the play that we produced yesterday and will again today. The end of the month uh, after Christmas, we will return to our normal preaching series in the Gospel of Matthew and um, pick it up about chapter, oh goodness sake, seven or eight or someplace in there. But for today, uh, looking at David as shepherd warrior king, pointing to Jesus, shepherd warrior king, under the heading today, how a shepherd becomes a king. If you look at your study sheet there from your bulletin, you see a bit of background information, some comments from last week that I will just let you look at. It'll give a little context to where we've been. Last week spent our time introducing 2 Samuel 7, to which we'll return next week. I want to go down to the two sections that really are my uh, meat and potatoes for today. Uh, The one under the heading God's great story of redemption uh, being amazing. And then the other side of the page is the second. Those two categories will be mine today. Want to give you some idea of what this is about. Because when I get on a bus, I always want to know where the bus is going and if I'm on the right bus. So you are on the right bus, I'll assure you of that. But as to where the bus is going, it's going to go like this, all right? That first heading is a bigger picture. It's really less about David and more about who is this guy and why are we talking about him now, you know, a while later. So really big picture. And we're going to race, seriously, from Genesis to the Gospels. And, um, man, we're going to make some tracks. But I think it's important because some of us know kind of the big picture of the Bible, and a lot of the rest of us really don't. And so to just start talking about some guy named Dave, David, Davey, I don't know, uh, randomly without knowing how he fits in the big picture, I, I think is maybe less than helpful. So bigger picture, why are we talking about this guy? And then under the second category, we want to look more at his life and And how God worked in him and through circumstances and people to shape his character, to break his pride, and to turn his feet in a different direction. And the reason we want to go there is because the same same tools that God used in David's life, he uses today. And he uses in yours. And so when we get to David's life and some of those details, if you begin to think, you know, this is kind of familiar Uh, you'd be right, because God still does the same things in us to to shape us, to to pry our hands off of things we shouldn't have, to break our pride, and and to turn us to him. He He does, because he loves us. So that's really the plan for the morning. I'd love to pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll get after it, all right? A lot of work ahead of us. So thank you for being here, but let's pray together. Father, we trust you for the morning. We thank you for the privilege of opening the word of God together. Uh, We don't take that for granted. We don't take it lightly. For a church family to do this week after week, to open our Bibles together and and not just to to learn facts and figures, but to to come to the word of the living God and turn our our thoughts and our hearts and our prayers to you. We we need you. We need you in our life. Um, And I pray, Father, that you'd meet us today um, by the work of the Spirit of God using the word of God to draw us close to you. We ask that of you in Jesus name. Amen. 
So I had you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16 because that is the first text we will read in a couple of minutes, and it's a promise that we're going to get there. All right, so with that open on your lap, I'd like you just to to work with me conceptually. How many of you years ago now uh, ever attended a walk through the Bible seminar? Six, okay, or thereabouts, maybe eight, same about first hour. And let me just tell you, uh, there used to be this seminar put on by Bruce Wilkinson that was, uh, it was typically Saturday morning or something like that in a church. And um, it was a, it was a quick trip through scripture to give a person an overview. If you ever attended that, then you're a step ahead of some of the rest of us. But, but I've used seven bullet points here on your study sheet to fly, oh man, almost embarrassingly quickly. But I, I just want some framework. So if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, it begins with a book called Genesis, which is a book that means, well, it means beginnings, and it tells about what happened in the beginning. And the first four words of the Bible, as we would read them, are those words, in the beginning, God. And of course, it's followed by created the heavens and the earth, but the But the very beginning, the very beginning when time opens for us in the Bible, God is there. Nothing else but God and those beings in his presence. In the beginning, God. Now, the book of of, of Genesis then follows with those four elements that I've represented there in your study sheet. Creation, fall, flood, and nations. And, of course, that would take you to Genesis 1 through 11. So we all, back in the day of, of walk through the Bible, learned certain signs for that, right? Creation, God made everything and Adam and Eve fell into sin and and then there was Noah's flood and the nations and so on, followed by the book of Genesis, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, 12 sons from whom, of course, descended the 12 tribes of Israel, one daughter, Dinah, Uh, Joseph, of course, all of those stories make up the book of Genesis. Uh, God's people went down to Egypt. Okay, you see where we're going here? You guys with me? I can sense the excitement on your faces. I really, this resembles a history class, which for me, I mean, that's like, what else could you want? History is one of the best topics that you could ever study in school. So for goodness sakes, history, this is the coolest. God's people went down to Egypt out of hunger, first of all. And before long, Exodus will tell you, another king rose, rose up who didn't know Joseph. And so they ended up being slaves for 400 years, 400 years, very long time, slaves in Egypt, oppressed, wondering, where is God? Um, If you've ever wondered, where is God? Why doesn't he fix this? You're in good company because down through the years, many, many people before you have asked that question. Where is God in all of this? 400 years, slaves in Egypt. Then came the Exodus led by Moses. And of course, the Exodus, you know, your, your Bible history Two big redemptive events, right? The the Exodus in the Old Testament, that points the way to the second, and of course, that's the coming of Jesus. Many, many parallels between the two, not the least of which would be the Passover lamb, the lamb whose blood was shed to protect people from, from death. And of course, the blood of Jesus, the great lamb of God. So those two redemptive events, 40 years spent in the desert. I gave you a little fill in there. Make sure you get one S not two, because believe me, it's not 40 years spent in the desert. Uh, so I know, I know wilderness, desert, pick one of those, but 40 years spent in the desert, wandering around and then the move into the promised land uh, under Joshua. Hey, we're halfway there. That's pretty good. Soon came the time of the judges. Uh, the judges cycle again, hundreds of years. That includes the story of Ruth that was our focus last year, if you were with us. 
our, our, our seven-year progression, of course, with Christmas programs and Advent preaching. We started with the Patriarchs and the Abrahamic Covenant. Last year went to Ruth, which is set in the time of the Judges, and then, of course, come to David. The United Kingdom, under three big kings, Saul, David, Solomon, each ruling for about 40 years. Years ago, I learned a cool trick in school. After history class, it was called math. So I know that 40, 40, and 40... Anybody need their calculator for that? We're getting really lazy with these things today. 120 years or so for the United Kingdom. I know you could do that. United Kingdom, about 120 years. And then the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, split into two parts under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Very bad call at his point, and you can read about all that in the Bible. The north and the south, sounds familiar to us here in the U.S. The north and the south, Israel, the northern ten tribes, and the south, also called Judah. Now, what I'm telling you will make sense of the Old Testament. If you get a hold of this, jot it down and kind of remember this structure, it'll help you as you read the Old Testament to kind of know what's going on in history. Now, all of us, uh, most of us, in history class hated to memorize dates. People always say that. I don't want to memorize dates. Well, here are three. Just three. Just three. And on these hang a lot of Old Testament history. So 931, 722, and 586. If you get those three, my goodness sakes, it makes sense of the Old Testament. So 931, that's when the kingdom split, north and south. 722 is when the Assyrians came in and kind of wiped out the north. All kinds of things happened. And 586, that's when the lights went out in the south. Babylonian army came in and uh, things kind of closed down in the southern part of Israel, Judah. Of course, uh, those three dates, man, they'll help you figure it out. 70 years, that time of exile, as Jeremiah would tell you, followed by the decree of Cyrus, restoration, rebuilding Ezra and Nehemiah, walls, temple, 400 years of silence, and then Messiah Jesus. Okay, how are you? How you doing? How you doing? You guys okay? Survived that? Crash course in history? Well, David then is placed back in the United Kingdom. Uh, you see, um, bullet point number four, David. David, one of the great kings of Israel. We've called him shepherd warrior king, pointing the way to Jesus, the greater shepherd warrior king. I just thought that was important for, for us. Big picture. Now, stepping to the next section. Uh, here's, here's really what I want to do here. I want us to see that God shaped David's life. He took him from the sheepfold, as you'll read in Psalm 78, to be the king. And he did some things in his life. He, he shaped his life through a number of very important disciplines. I call them classrooms that God uses today. Uh, should be familiar. God uses weak people, I'm saying here, to show his glory. David was certainly that. And by the way, lest you say, I'm sure glad God uses those weak people. I'm also talking to you because you would be one as well. All right. We are, we are weaker than we tend to think. And our times of strength, we sometimes think that's typically where we are. And it's not true. Now, several little bullet points under this, some just uh, biographical really about David, David, and then uh, a number of things I want to look at. But I, I'm saying this, and I didn't have you turn here because it's such a, an introductory element and not a lot to be gained from it in terms of reading the specific text. David's predecessor had the right looks but the wrong heart. That's an important thing to realize as we step toward David's life. I just gave you the texts so you could look those up. David's predecessor, Saul, had the right looks but the wrong heart. The text tells us that when people looked at Saul, they saw this tall, strong guy 
And they said, whoa, he looks like a king. Now, he wasn't initially excited about that, but he was a tall, strong guy. And people often make mistakes when they look at somebody and think they know what their, what their heart is. Isn't that right? You look at Saul, you'd say, mm, looks like a king. And he wasn't a good one. No heart for God. We learned, of course, not only in the Bible, but walk through the Bible. Uh, Saul had no heart, no heart for God. Now, we're here in 1 Samuel 16, where I want to read these first 13 verses. All of these things that I'm going to go over today, I think, are represented in our play. So you'll say, well, you just saw that yesterday. Well, I want you to see it in the Bible, not just on a a stage. And then we'll we'll talk more specifically about them. But 1 Samuel 16 is just, I think, a pivotal event in David's life. And it tells us something about his family and about those, those, those mean and rascally older brothers. You know how older brothers are? Well, here you go. First Samuel 16, as I read verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel the prophet, of course, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided my, for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Of course, King Saul was uh, kind of half crazy with jealousy and rage at the time. If Saul hears, he'll kill me, Samuel says, probably correctly. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do. And pause for a moment. The idea was that in that kind of a setting, uh, that sacrifice and so on would involve what we would consider kind of like a barbecue. It's food to eat. So you could invite people. It was a wonderful thing, not just uh, a sacrifice in that sense. So uh, then... Samuel says, anoint for me then, anoint for me him whom I declare to you, God says to Samuel. Samuel then, verse 4, does what the Lord commands, goes to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab. I'd be the firstborn, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. We saw that in the play yesterday as Big John stood right here and heard the wonderful announcement that God was going to pick a a king from Jesse's sons. And, of course, he begins to strut on stage. It's because he knows the story. That's where it came from. Eliab, yes, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But verse 7, one of those important verses in the Bible on this particular topic, it's the one people reference a lot. Here it is. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as, as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That right. That's both for good and for ill. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, Well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent him and brought him in, and he was ruddy, or reddish, that is, reddish complexion, beautiful eyes, handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And I put this on your study sheet in a oh, kind of a progression here that you look at David as a, as a, guy, a little guy. Uh, David underestimated by his family is what I, what I, how I described that. They have a family get together. Somebody important's in town. Everybody's invited. Well, except David. I mean, he's just the little guy. I mean, Rodney Dangerfield of the family, if you will. I mean, where's the respect? Poor little guy. He's out there with the sheep. Everybody's here. Mashed potatoes and gravy. Time for a big party. Well, there's David. He's with the sheep. Everybody's here, right? You know, home alone. It's home alone. Back in the Old Testament. We're half on an airplane to Paris. Nobody knows the little guy's not here. And, I, you know, you have fun with the moment, but I, I think there's some truth to this. Um, everybody's here. Bring all your kids. God's going uh, to anoint one of these guys as king. Everybody's here. Now, some of you are oldest or older. You don't get this. Some of us, I'm fifth out of sixth. I, I just think we, we look at this and we kind of smile and nod and say, uh-huh. See, that's the way it is. Those of you who are older, brothers and sisters, kind of just forget about the little guys and girls. Now, come on. All the, all the people in the room that were younger, you give a united, that's right. All of you who are older brothers go, what? We never did that. Well, I think it's true here. Underestimated by his brothers. Oh, way too much fun. Chapter 17. Now, I'm going to be jumping around in the story a little bit and, and trust you to just kind of hang with me on this. But I, I want to go to chapter 17. So we've, David's come, he's been anointed, and, and then he goes back to watching sheep. Chapter 17 is the story of the battle with Goliath. And I, I want to pick up a couple verses here, not about Goliath. We're really not going to read that part. Um, it's portrayed in our play. But I'm looking at the interaction between people. Chapter 17, verse 13. Again, these rascally older brothers. Uh, the three oldest brothers of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now, we already know that from chapter 16, right? Why do you think they repeat it? Why is it repeated here in chapter 17? Well, it's because of the same reason that you repeat things to your kids endlessly. Uh, you remind them again and again and again. You're trying to make a point. And I think the writer here is trying to make a point. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's like his father's emissary running things back and forth. Now you come down to verse 28. Eliab, the older brother, well, the eldest brother, heard. And what he heard was in the preceding paragraphs, David's walking around going, hey, there's this big Goliath guy. Are you guys scared of him? He's a little guy. Are you guys scared of him? You guys chicken? I can just picture how he said all this. I mean, come on. Are you guys soldiers or not? Shouldn't you be out there? I mean, this guy's a big oaf, and he's, he's, he's blaspheming God. Shouldn't, shouldn't somebody go fight him? Eliab's not up for it. Eliab's anger then, verse 28, burns toward, or is kindled toward David, and he says, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? How many sheep were there? Do you know? No, because the Bible never says. So, so my take on this eldest brother thing, there could have, I, I'm guessing they wouldn't leave a guy out in the wilderness with three sheep, that is. I think there's a flock, and this is big snarky brother picking on the little guy, all right? Younger siblings, 
arise. That's what I think is going on here in the text. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. You want us to go out there and fight. You want to see bloodshed. I mean, come on, David, get out of here, little punk. That's, that's my translation of the Hebrew. David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? And he turned away toward another and spoke in the same way. People answered him as above, so on. So those big brothers, I put it under the heading, David, unappreciated by his seven brothers. Unappreciated. That's a mild way of describing the family dynamic. So underestimated by his family, including his dad, I I think in some measure, unappreciated by his seven brothers. Now, chapter 18, then we're skipping ahead, and forgive me for the jumping around, but it it, kind of made sense in my brain, so it's what you get. But this third element then comes right after the battle with Saul, or sorry, with Goliath, and David now is going to come and play music and so on for Saul, but... um, In chapter 18, verse 6, they're just coming back from the battle, coming home. It says, David returned from striking down the Philistine. That's the big guy, Goliath. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. With tambourines, songs of joy, musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more, can he, what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul eyed David from that day on, that is, with suspicion. This is called paranoia, also, on the part of the king. Uh, but I have here, as I look at David's life, David's viewed as a threat then by King Saul. So underestimated by his family and appreciated by his brothers, a threat to the king. And that sets us up for this next element there on your study notes. Okay? Where I just, with that as kind of a backdrop, I'm saying this, like many before him, Moses and Joseph, and of course I have those in reverse chronological order, like many since, David has been schooled in some of God's favorite classrooms. Now, I really want you to pay attention here because I want to look at a couple more texts where where we're looking specifically at things that God used to shape David's life. So far, really just biographical information, chronology, and so on. But now I want to step to a couple of other texts where you look at God's specific training of David's heart. Because listen... God cares about what's going on inside of you. Not just about your behavior, not just about how polite you are and how dressed up you get. God cares about what you love. He cares about hidden things that only he sees. And so, and I'm using the analogy of a classroom, God sends us to school time and again to teach us things that are for our good Things he knows we need. And he does it He does it because he loves us, not because he doesn't. All right? So I want to look with you. Now, stepping back into chapter 17, we're going to step, first of all, into the conversation that David has with Saul. Now, here's some information we don't get anywhere else. It's information we know about David, but here's why we know it, is David's telling us. So chapter 17... This is when David is meeting with Saul prior to fighting Goliath. And Saul is saying, are you serious? You're just a kid. 
You're not even a soldier. What are you marching out there against some big old Goliath guy for? You can't do that. David's explaining his credential. He says in verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a, a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him. That's a striking phrase. If you're a small guy, you're a kid, and a lion or a bear comes, what do you do? Save yourself and flee. That's what you do. Well, David missed that part. I went after him, struck him down, delivered it out of his mouth. So this is a hungry lion or bear. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by the beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine, that would be Goliath, will be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And David said, uh, Saul says, go, go and let the, and the Lord be with you. That's a classroom. That's a classroom. David's describing it. Chapter 18, verse 11. I just want to visit each of these and I'll describe them. Okay. In terms of titles and so on. Here's another moment in chapter 18. This moment of jealousy. They've come back from battle. The term I, uh, portion I just read a moment ago. Chapter uh, 18, verse 11. Saul hurls his spear at David. And of course, that's Hiram Kamalu kind of letting it loose here on our stage. Um, hurls the spear and thinking, I will pin David to the wall. Well, how's that for a young guy you know, playing a harp? Saul, of course, is a, is a warrior, misses. Now, I'm assuming that either he's a lousy shot in his older years, which I tend to doubt, or David's, like I often say, he's got cat-like reflexes. He's a quick guy. A little, I don't know, he might have been small and wiry and hard to hit. I, I don't know, but Saul missed. But I'm, I'm just thinking of that in terms of a, a workplace environment. He plays the harp for this guy to take away his headaches. And the boss tries to kill you. Well, that's kind of a lousy way to go to work. And that's David. Chapter 21. Now, just a couple more. And I want to put these into some categories for us. Chapter 21. Moving ahead in the, in the story. Again, assuming you may or may not be familiar with some of these. But David is running. He's running now from Saul. Saul's after him. And he's searching the land for this kid. He's got his army out, all, you know, all points bulletin out for David with a death warrant for him. And David doesn't at this point know anywhere else to go but to run to the land of the enemy. And so in chapter 21, verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul, went to Achish, the king of Gath. That's the enemy. It's the land of the Philistines. There's no safe place in your home country. He crosses the border into the bad guy's country. How about that? He says, I'm safer over here with an enemy king than at home. The servants of Achish said to him, to the king, that is, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing of, to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very afraid, do you think, of Achish the king of Gath? I mean, David's the guy who killed Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. And now you're in his house. I mean, think about this. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. This is, this is how low he's gotten. He's run to the enemy, and now the enemy's going to get him. He says he makes marks on the door of the gate and lets his spittle run down his beard. He starts drooling all over himself. 
He, he pretends like he's crazy. He's got no other to, I mean, what are you going to do? Fight him? Not today. You're outnumbered. You're by yourself. Okay, David, smart guy. Okay, act crazy. Uh, what did that look like for the future king? He loses all dignity. Uh, I wouldn't want to call it groveling, but drooling all over yourself is pretty humiliating. How far down can you go? You ever wondered that? How far down can I go? I suspect David is asking all kinds of questions at this point, like, boy, it's been a few years since I was anointed king. Where's all the king promises? I've been running for my life ever since. I mean, God made some promises. Where is he now? I mean, God, hello, been praying about this. Haven't seen any good answers yet. If David was writing a book or talking to a friend, he could easily say, you know, I'm kind of done with this. I mean, God made these cool promises. Drools all over himself. The king finally says, this guy's a crazy man. Do I, am I short on crazy men? Which I think is a kind of a funny statement. Get him out of here. And then finally, finally, you think you can't go any lower? Well, you can. Chapter 30, one other little stop. And we'll talk about all these. Chapter 30, uh, again, skipping ahead, David's collected a small army, kind of like guerrilla warfare, that kind of thing. They're surviving by raiding the enemy and things like that. And during one of their raids away, another group of enemies come in and raid their camp. And they take their, their families and all their stuff. And they come back, David and his, his, his little band of guerrilla army guys, and they start blaming David because he's the guy in charge. That's what happens, is you're after the guy in charge. And it says in chapter 30, verse 6, the people spoke of stoning him. Can you imagine? Now they want to kill him. Your own guys, they want to kill you. And I just, I just look here at David's life, the number of times when I suspect that he, he at least could have felt very alone, forgotten, unappreciated, I'm going to give you some little categories, some little fill-in-the-blanks, if you haven't done it already by looking at the bottom of the page. Here are some of the classrooms that God uses, and I think he still uses these today. Obscurity. Obscurity. Who was watching David on the hills? Well, only God, but nobody else saw. Nobody else saw the hours of taking care of sheep. He finished off a lion or bear. Who cheered? Nobody. When he could have run away, but he didn't. Who, who patted him on the back and said, David, I'm going to give you a good job medal today. I'm going to get a little bonus in, your, in your, you know, your Christmas stocking or something. No lump of coal for you. You're, nobody saw. Nobody congratulated him doing, him right, doing it right. Have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself, I mean, is this even worth getting this right? Because nobody notices. David could have asked that. Obscurity. Second, monotony. Boring. Other than the occasional intrusions of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Uh, David's life as a shepherd, I think, was remarkably monotonous. Day after day, lambs, sheep. What are you going to do tomorrow? Same thing. Week from now. Yep. Uh, I, I think of a, of a mom with little kids. Wiping noses and mouths and other things and washing more piles of whatever. What are you going to do tomorrow? Same thing. How about next week? It looks just like this again. Same thing. And you kind of half go crazy. 
How long is this going to go? You're going to have another one. Oh, man, that's guaranteeing more years of the same thing. Uh, they're wonderful little darlings. Keep them coming. It's good. But, but monotony, it's one of those classrooms in life, isn't it? Some of you, it, it may be in a job setting, same deal. You, you, you're in some job where you're going, I am bored silly here. I can't afford to quit, but I can hardly survive showing up again. I hate this. Guess what? Same thing, same thing. Yes, it's wonderful. Hate this. I'm bored. Monotony, routine coming out your ears. I think David had some of that for years, taking care of these few sheep in the wilderness. Danger. Where did David learn to be courageous? Where do you learn to draw a line in the sand and stand there? Where do you learn that? Where do you learn to draw a sword and say, okay, not on my watch? Where do you learn to do that? Only when things go south. That's how you learn that. That's how you learn to take a stand is when there's something to be stood against. Where do you learn some backbone? Well, only from being some force to push you around. David didn't know at the time that he was developing courage and inner strength for a future day when he was going to really need it. That's why I call it a classroom. He's going to school. God's going to shape his life. David can't see it. He can't see at the moment. God's preparing you for a really big, giant problem. So you better, you better practice a lot to hit, the, hit, hit your target, son. Because there's going to be a day you're going to need that skill. You just can't see it today. Obscurity, monotony, danger, suffering. Suffering of all sorts. What's it like to be unjustly accused? Don't you hate that? Don't you hate that? People think this, and it's not true. And nobody apparently wants to hear it. Unjustly accused, public enemy number one, hunted like a criminal, misunderstood by your friends. I haven't had any friends try to, you know, stone me, but nor probably have you. Misunderstood by your friends. There's another word you could just jot in the margin. I didn't give you a fill-in for this because I, it was, I was just mulling all the instincts over since putting together the sermon notes. But the term waiting covers a lot of these. It, it intersects with a lot. There's a lot of life we spend waiting. Yeah. I don't mean waiting in line at you know, your favorite grocery store. That's obnoxious too. But I mean, I mean waiting, waiting for God, waiting for life to change, waiting for somebody else's heart to change, waiting for your heart to change, waiting for somebody to finally grow up. We wait, we wait. Sometimes we're not sure what we're waiting for or if what we're waiting for will ever happen. We're waiting. This category of suffering I've been thinking about because... Um, I've been moving quickly through this little book um, called Suffering. I have the title and the author here on your study notes uh, if you're interested in this kind of thing. Paul David Tripp, this is published in 2018. It's a book on suffering, all kinds of suffering. Paul Tripp, of course, is a counselor and a writer and a conference speaker and so on. And a uh, he's not a stranger to different kinds of suffering as well. This book, though written in 2018, uh, really has as its backdrop um, a sudden change in his life in 2014 when he went from what would appear to have been great health to near death 
um, just sudden and very severe kidney failure and uh, irreparable kidney failure. He's not well now, and he's writing this book um, in part reflecting on this shift in his brain from life being normal and wonderful, and clearly God loves me because my life is whole, uh, to suddenly, where is God now that my life is going right down the toilet physically and I might not be here in six months? So talking about suffering, and of course it's not limited to physical suffering. He, he talked about all kinds of suffering. And where is God in it all? When In his subtitle there, Gospel Hope, When Life Doesn't Make Sense. But I've, I want to use this book. I'm going to read a paragraph from it, but I want to direct your eyes to my sections there called Responding to God's Word, if you would, please. Um, I, I, I repeated a section from last week. It's the italicized part, that first bullet point. A reminder to us, it's here again, as with last week, that God uses all means possible to fight for our hearts, including his wise and sovereign use of pain and struggle, to pry our fingers off of things we ought not be holding on to, pry our hearts off of things we ought not be putting our hope in. We, we, we come up with false saviors, things that we... Things that we, we, we reach for to give us hope and joy, to make our lives complete. And I call them false because they're never intended to be that. Now, I want you to hear Paul Tripp on this, if you don't mind. This is in a chapter called The Comfort of God's Purpose, uh, later on in the book. But, but listen to this paragraph. I found this so gripping and so well stated. He says, we are all like pilgrims on a great spiritual journey living in an uncomfortable world of tents, as in temporary things, and other temporary locations, all the hardship and loss we face are designed by God to prepare us for our eternal home. God is working through hardship to pry open our hands and loosen our hearts from our tight grip on the here and now. Get this sentence. I think this is worth the price of the book, but I'm going to give it to you free. Okay? He says this, he is working to release us from the hope that this present world will ever be the paradise that our hearts long for. I'm going to read that again. It is, that is, that is just gospel truth. Well, God works on us through the gospel. He's working to release us from the hope that this present world will ever be the paradise that our hearts long for. A lot of times we spend our years wanting paradise here. It was never intended to be, especially now in a fallen world. Uh, We've talked about this. It's a desert out there. It's a wilderness. These bodies get old and sick and die. They do. And those around us, same thing. This isn't the paradise that we long for. And so sometimes we load this responsibility on loved ones or circumstances. And we expect all of these things to make us truly and finally happy money and possessions. And finally a dream job. We, and then we talk about a dream house and dream spouse and dream kids. And when it, you're laughing about the kids, I know, but we're, we're wanting the, you know, make me happy. That's why you're here is to make me feel whole and well-loved and cared for. And that's your job. It is. And all will be well with the world. And it doesn't happen. And we're crushed. And Paul Tripp will say, yes, he's, he's using 
suffering and pain and difficulty to release us from this, that your hope would be here instead of there. Wow. He's employing suffering to produce in our hearts a deep and motivating longing for a much, much better home, the eternal house that's the promise of his grace to us all. If, if you are in that classroom of difficulty, here's a good book, a 2018 published, so you might not have read it yet, but I, I try to keep up on issues of suffering because life is full of suffering and difficulty. It is. And um, we need all the help we can get. Now, there are a couple of other things here for you to think about. I, I'd like you to, to look at this. But I want to I close, pull things together with this. Uh, back in uh, 19, the 1990s, um, Kathy and I were in that, those years of having kids. One of our daughters born in 1990, 1991, miscarriage. And then a, a threatened pregnancy. And for some of you, if you haven't been through some of those things, you go, yeah, well, you'll, you'll get over it. I, I, I got it. And others of you know some of the, the difficulty of that, wondering uh, how this is going to work out. And uh, other parts of that story I'll, I'll leave for another time. Wondering, wondering what God was going to do with us and for us. During those, during those months, we church family praying for us about some specific things. A friend of ours, Howard, uh, gave me this. This is a cassette tape. <laughs> yeah, it goes like this. I don't know. Sorry. I, I don't mean to patronize all of you who are younger, but back in the day, this was the cutting edge way to have music. And our friend Howard gave me this little cassette by Steve Green because he wanted me to listen to the last song on side one. And I'm going to read it to you. It's called Hidden Valleys, and it's about this. It's about this. You may be in one of these today. Steve Green, Hidden Valleys, 1991. In a hidden valley just over the hill, a young shepherd boy surrenders his will. As he lifts his voice and prays to his king, only the lambs will hear and follow as he sings. In a hidden valley, a faithful one leads, no one looking on. He cares for their needs. For he knows the one who tries the heart, so he is steadfast and content to do his part. Here's the chorus. Hidden valleys produce a life song. Hidden valleys will make a heart strong. Desperation can cause you to sing. Hidden valleys turn shepherds to kings. In a hidden valley, a leader is born. He's faced the fierce and weathered the storm. So with a humble heart and love for his God, he becomes royalty with just a staff and rod. Hidden valleys produce a life song. Hidden valleys will make a heart strong. Desperation can cause you to sing. Hidden valleys turn shepherds to, king, to kings. You may be in some of those today. Maybe a valley that others know about. Maybe a classroom that, that others know you're in. It's also possible that you're in a classroom or a valley that no one knows but you and God. However that plays out, I want you to know today, whatever classroom or whatever thing you're learning, whatever place God's working in your life, he has not forgotten you. You're there by his design, and you're there as a much-loved child 
of the Father. And he knows what he's doing. And he's trustworthy. He never makes mistakes. And if you question that, if you wonder, here's what you do. You look to the cross of Jesus, where Jesus shed his life's blood for you and for me. Where you see the, the, the pain that he suffered, all part of the plan of God, so you and I could be forgiven for our sin and welcomed into God's family. Now, the cross is a reminder. God does know what he's doing. Easter morning, resurrection, new life, God knew. He knew. He knew. The gospel is not only a reminder, it's the way that God changes us. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. He walks with you through those valleys. Would you stand with me? We want to pray. I want to pray for you. Pray for us that God would use his word to encourage us today. How a shepherd becomes a king. Father, thank you so much for what you have told us in the Bible. This big story of redemption. You're at work even now writing this this story of redemption in its fullest. Thank you so much for what you did in David's life. Oh, I know he wasn't perfect. He really wasn't. He messed a lot of things up royally. Father, you continued to use him and love him. Keep your promises to him, even as you continue to use us and keep your promises to us when we mess things up royally as well. Thank you that we are children of the king when we've trusted Christ as our savior. I pray today for anybody who's, who's not sure where they stand with you, that you would draw their hearts in faith, Faith, trusting Jesus that died on the cross for their sin, rose from the dead. Father, allow us today to call out to you in simple faith. Thank you for being our God, our Savior, our shepherd, warrior, king. We pray with gratefulness in his name. Amen.